John chapter 10. I want to know if you've ever felt restless for home. Have you ever felt restless for home? I remember very distinctly a time many years ago when I first went to college, the most homesick I've ever been in my entire life was that day my parents dropped me off. They left. They got me all settled in my dorm room. And I was, uh, lived in downtown Chicago at the Moody Bible Institute on the 14th floor. It was freshman week, so my roommate, who was a sophomore, hadn't yet showed up. And, uh, and after they left, the door closed, and there I was, all alone in Chicago, an Iowa boy. And I just remember at 18 years old thinking, I just want to go home. Like, this, this is lonely. And there was just this great homesickness in me. I had another experience like that, probably the second most homesick I've ever felt, was when I was with Waukee Community Church in the Arabian Peninsula doing a great, incredible mission work. And I remember just uh, finding in our little house there and, and laying in bed uh, at night between sessions thinking, or between days and, and doing work and just thinking, all I want to do is see my kids and hug my kids. Like I miss my wife. I miss my kids. I remember just being on the other side of the world, feeling completely homesick. I don't know about you, but have you ever had a longing for home? In John 10.10, 10, oddly enough, it may not seem this way, but in John 10.10, 10, we read a verse about longing. Jesus said it this way. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This verse in my heart makes me long for home, not for my house, not for my house on 159th Street in Urbandale, not the house I grew up in, not, not even for my family. This verse makes me long for my home, for the true home in the kingdom of God. It makes me long for all the wrongs of this world to be righted, for the kingdom of God to be fully established. It creates in me a longing because Jesus said, I've come that they may have life. We're in this series for Christmas called Why? Why did Jesus come? And you know, at Christmas time, we think about Jesus coming to this earth. He came to this earth in a, in a manger, in a barn so many years ago. And we asked the, the question, why did he come? And common answers are was, well, you know, Christmas is so cute. It wouldn't be cute if there wasn't a baby at Christmas, right? Or, you know, maybe it come to be a good example. Jesus came so that we could be kind and nice to each other. Maybe some have said that Jesus came to get you into heaven. Some have said Jesus came to forgive our sins. Or some said, hey, Jesus has come so I can have a day off work in December, right? Some have said Jesus came so the economy could prosper. Because after all, we wouldn't have Black Friday if it wasn't for Christmas. So someone said that. Some think that uh, Christmas is Jesus came so that they could get together with their families. If you're a kid or not a kid, you might think Jesus came so you could get presents, right? Or lastly, to remind us of hope and peace. So many people think of Christmas being a time of year of hope and peace. Why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus had some thoughts about this. In fact, Jesus oftentimes says in the Gospels, I have come for a reason. 
And he'll state that reason. Oftentimes, the writers of the New Testament speak of Jesus and they say, Jesus came for this purpose. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at five different reasons that Jesus came. And today, we're going to look at the first reason. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, that you might have life. If you've ever felt that life wasn't quite right, if you had in yourself ever a longing for life to be more than it is, I need to remind you today that Jesus came so that you would have life. Because the reality is, this world in which we live is not home. This world is the territory of the enemy. And what Jesus is doing in establishing his kingdom is taking back territory for the enemy, from the enemy. And what happens is each and every one of us in our hearts have, there is a longing created for life the way it's supposed to be. It reminds me of what we just looked about in our series on 1 Peter, when we talked about strangers in a strange land. We're going to come back to that in, uh, in January, or actually might be at the beginning of February, we're going to come back to that series and do part two of Strangers in a Strange Land and finish up the book of First Peter. But as we looked, it's this reminder, we are strangers in a land that's not how it should be. And Jesus says, I have come at Christmas so that you could have life. Let me give you a little background to John chapter 10 before we go any further. Uh, John chapter 10 is an interesting thing. Jesus is in conflict with a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a Jewish group of people that have pretty much written the book on how they thought people should relate to God and how they could connect with God. And they had a whole set of rules and things that they should, that you had to abide by to connect with God. These were the Pharisees in short. And Jesus is constantly at odds with the Pharisees. And it's no different here in John chapter 10. And so he's in conflict with this group of religious superstars. And Jesus, as he often does, starts telling illustrations. And Jesus has in mind, in this passage, John chapter 10, a sheep pen. Now, uh, agriculture in the ancient Near East wasn't anything like we have today. There weren't modern buildings that you set up and ran animals in and out of. Uh, Shepherds worked out in fields. But at nighttime, oftentimes a shepherd would have set up a stone wall, a stone barrier in which he could keep the sheep. There was usually an entrance, a gate as it were, in in one side of the the stone circle. And he would herd the sheep in there for the night. And then oftentimes the shepherd would lay down in the entryway so the sheep wouldn't get out. And the idea, of course, in this pen was not only to keep the sheep in so they weren't wandering at night, but to keep wolves and and thieves out. And oftentimes the shepherd would act as the gate. So just before John 10.10 and John 10.7, it makes sense when Jesus says, therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were robbers. So Jesus is setting up this picture of a shepherd sleeping in the doorway of a sheep pen, keeping his sheep safe from enemies, from thieves. And so herein, as we read this, lies the great struggle in this passage. Because there are really two players in this story that Jesus says in John 10.10. There's a shepherd and there's a thief. First of all, we want to look at a thief. 
There is someone who is stealing, and the first main player in the story is the life stealer. That's what the, that's what the text says here. The verse says, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Who's the thief in this passage? Well, at first glance, we might say, well, it's the enemy is Satan. This is his domain. He's the imposter. He came here. But Jesus isn't initially talking about Satan. The first person he's talking about, which is a bit offensive, is the Pharisees. He's saying, you're the ones that came before. You're the imposters. You're the bad shepherds. You're, you're the imposters. But of course, by implication, they're working for the true thief, Satan. So Jesus has already worked hard at not making friends because he's told the, the Pharisees, essentially, you're imposter shepherds. And secondly, you work for the enemy, Satan. And of course, they would be greatly offended by this. And in fact, in verse 19, later on, look at their reaction to this. Um, at, at these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? The things that Jesus was saying was so outlandish, was so out there to accuse Pharisees of being agents of the devil, thieves, was just downright offensive. You see, but what Jesus understands here is the greater picture of what's going on. The only way that we can understand and put what Jesus is saying here in its proper context is we have understand the greater and bigger struggle in the entire biblical narrative. The struggle began way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan lied to Eve. When Satan deceived her. When Adam disobeyed God knowing full well what he was doing because he chose to listen to Satan. At that moment, the entire scope of this earth that we live on changed. The entire scope of everything changed. The, the, the rightful king was replaced by an imposter king, Satan. And this is the essence of kingdom theology. If you don't understand that there is a real enemy in this world, if you don't understand that we're struggling against a real enemy, if you don't get this, then life really won't make much sense to you. Because really, if you don't get that there's a real enemy, you're left wondering, why didn't God give me a better life? Why didn't give, he give me a life that I deserved, that I wanted? Why am I, why am I lacking everything I ever desired? Why wouldn't God like me? Because if you have ever said that, you don't understand the nature of the world in which we live. We live in the world run by a defeated but still active imposter, a thief, a life stealer. What Jesus wants you to know is that there is a thief, a real thief in this world. And his name is Satan. And he has agents like the Pharisees and others all around. But look at what the thief does, the life stealer. He does three things. Kill, steal, and destroy. The first thing he does is kill. The enemy brings death. He's the one who brings death. When two police officers in the Des Moines area are gunned down, it's the work of the enemy. When one of our founding elders at Waukee Community Church died of a heart attack in his backyard, 
It's the work of the enemy. When Christians are gunned down by ISIS, it's the work of the enemy. When my great-grandfather died in the early 1900s working on an electrical line because somebody didn't turn off the power, it's the work of the enemy. When my grandfather died when a tree fell on him, it's the work of the enemy. The realm of the enemy is deep and vast and powerful and the enemy brings death. He kills. This is what he does. But he doesn't just kill, he steals too. What does it mean that Satan steals? He's a life stealer. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, 18% of American adults suffer from anxiety and depression. You see, Satan is the one who is stealing fullness of life by lying to you. Did you know that's what Satan does? He lies. He lies to me. He lies to you. He gets you lying to yourself. And if you're anything like me, I, I believe him all the time. I just believe lies. Satan, this is what he does. Think about his first act. When he first appears on the scene in, in Genesis chapter 3, what's the first thing he says to Eve? He lies to her. He said, if you eat of this fruit that God told you not to eat of, you'll be like God. He paints a picture of this wonderful world that God is keeping her from. He's lying to her. That's what Satan does. If there's anything that Satan does not want for you, it's fullness of life. He wants to steal that from you. And that's really not, I mean, it, really in this world, this world says to us that it has the way for you and I to experience fullness of life. But it's almost always apart from Christ, isn't it? Think about the American view of retirement and you'll understand the lie that, that, that the world is telling us. The world is telling us is that when you retire, you know, you can go parasailing and that's fullness of life, right? You'll have this active life except, uh, or, or you'll be two people in bathtubs on a hilltop. I've never understood that, but anyway, there you go, uh, right? This is fullness of life in the world's view. It's a lie, and it's just joy stealing. Jesus has something so much greater in mind for you. The joy of the Lord is the joy of kingdom work. And Satan wants to steal that. If there's nothing else he do, does, he wants to paint a picture of you for that the goal of your life is to retire and sit on the sidelines and do nothing because you think that doing nothing will bring you joy. But in reality, that's joy stealing because joy is tied to our purpose in life doing kingdom work. Jesus, Jesus comes to give life. Satan comes to kill and he comes to steal. And the third thing that Satan does is he comes to steal and he comes to destroy. Satan's out to destroy the kingdom work of God in this world. Even though Satan is ultimately defeated, he's not done trying to destroy the work of the kingdom of God. He comes and he promises one thing, but he does another. He destroys the kingdom of work of God. That's what Satan is about. He promises one thing, he delivers another. Joseph Stalin rose to the head of the communist state in the 20s. He was the second leader of the Soviet Union. He ruled for 30 years. 
Communism was still in its idealistic phase. And Joseph Stalin promised so much. He promised a lot for his country. He promised life and true happiness. The problem, however, was that he delivered something different. He seized property. He started secret police. He terrorized and exterminated his own people. He revoked personal freedoms. He was, in some way, every bit the monster that Adolf Hitler was. But he promised life and brought death. He was a robber and a thief, just like Satan. Satan comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. At Christmas time, so many of you in this room understand the pain of death. You know firsthand the work of the enemy. You know what it's like to experience sorrow and pain. You know what it's like to experience sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. You know the work of the thief. But that's okay. It's okay to feel and know that deeply. Because the thief who causes destruction, he's the whole reason that Jesus came. Because there's a life stealer. In reflecting on the tragic death of his own mother, John Piper writes this. He says, he implores us. He says, many of you will feel your loss this Christmas more pointedly than before. He says, don't block it out. Let it come. Feel it. What is love for if not to intensify our affections, both in life and in death? But oh, don't be bitter. Because it's tragically self-destructive to be bitter. You see, bitterness is the life stealer. It's the work of him. The thief promises life, but he steals it. And that's so what's, so, what's so dangerous about him. Here's the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came in turn to do something different. This baby at Christmas, this little manger filled with all the fullness of the deity, God himself. Jesus came at Christmas, and we remember this for this reason. That's the second half of John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came so that they may have life and have it to the full. And this sets Jesus up to talk about really the second main character in our story. If the first character was the life stealer, the second one is entered the life giver. The life stealer, and now we're going to read about the life giver, Jesus. And we really pick up this in the next verse, John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus starts to, to explain what he means a little bit. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Now, okay, Jesus is mixing his metaphors a little bit. He just got done in some of the great I am's in the gospel of John by saying, I'm the gate. And now he switches and he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he's mixing up his metaphors, but that's okay. He's Jesus. He can mix metaphors if he wants to. He's mixing metaphors. And, and the Jews that are listening to this, they're tracking with him. They know exactly what he's talking about. And now he's switched to this idea that he gives life by protecting those that are his. 
So this is especially important in the Gospel of John to understand the context in which Jesus is talking about this. In the context, the Jews are just about ready to celebrate what we know today as Hanukkah. They're getting ready to celebrate Hanukkah. Now, um, we know Hanukkah is the, the other thing that happens around Christmas time. And it's really, it's a relatively minor holiday in the Jewish calendar. And it's not found in the Old Testament because Hanukkah happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There, there was a period of three or 400 years of silence where God, wasn't, God didn't speak. We don't have any scripture from those three or 400 years. But in that time, some important things happened on the world stage. And it's important to understand this, to understand the context in which Jesus has said, I have come that they may bring life. In the context of this, the Jews had returned to the, to the land at the end of the Old Testament and the Persians were in control. But between the Old and the New Testament, world politics changed. The Persians uh, lost to Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And the Greeks conquered the known world. And what, was, what is fascinating is the Greeks had a very interesting policy about how they would colonize, in a, a sense, the world. The Romans were very hands-off hands in terms of culture. The Romans later on would just go, hey, you know what? We don't care. Keep your culture. Just pay our taxes. And, you know, if you can add our gods to your pantheon, great. The, the, Jew, the Greeks had said something very different. They said, we are going to force you to learn and speak Greek. And we're going to force you to learn Greek culture. It's called the Hellenization of the world. And Alexander the Great forced everyone upon this. So they, they were so successful about this that even in the promised land of Israel, Jews over the generations stopped speaking Hebrew and only spoke Greek. They couldn't even understand the Old Testament as it was read to them. They abandoned the worship of God and were fully acculturated into the Greek world. So in about 165 BC, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion. Uh, he led a conservative revival amongst the Jews. They recaptured the temple and they rededicated it. And he lit a candle for eight days in the temple in defiance and rebellion against the Greek way that had, in his eyes, mind polluted the Jewish people. And it became this winter celebration, Hanukkah. There was a candle lit, and lit for what, uh, what Judas Maccabeus did in the temple, lighting this candle to say, this is territory for the Jews. Now, that's the context in which Jesus is talking. Underlying this celebration is the simple question, wait a minute. The Jewish people should be asking this. How could our leaders during this period of Alexander the Great allow the Greeks to just decimate our culture and take away the worship of God and essentially make us just like any other Greeks? How could they allow this to happen? You see, Jesus answers that question. He says, they weren't your rightful shepherds. All those who came before me were thieves. He said, I am your rightful shepherd. I am the one who brings life. Now, the Pharisees, they hated shepherds because shepherds were gross and dirty and they were just unimportant people. They were people that couldn't, 
you know, get real jobs and they were out in the field and they did the work that no one else wanted to do. And the Pharisees hated shepherds. But the common person understood a shepherd and Jesus is speaking to the common person because they were poor and they understood what it meant. And Jesus says, I am this shepherd. And then he says this, first phrase, I have come. So this is about Christmas purpose here to give reason for the incarnation. It's not merely Jesus isn't saying I have come to get a whole bunch of people to go to heaven someday. He's not saying, or I've come so that people can go shopping for Christmas, right? He's saying, I have come, not even as an example of peace. Jesus saying he's come because he has something better in mind for them than these illegitimate shepherds had. He's come to give life to the full. Jesus is a life giver. I think D.A. Carson said it well on this verse when he said this, Life to the full means that the life Jesus' true disciples enjoy is not to be construed as more time to fill, merely everlasting life, but life as it's scarcely at its scarcely imagined best, life to be lived. One of the scariest portrayals that you and I have about heaven is that it will be an eternal vacation. And I think that is one of the scariest portrayals of heaven, the concept of a permanent vacation. And the problem with this here is that we've all experienced a vacation that we desperately wanted to come to an end. You can only do vacation for so long, right? At some point, you just want to go home and get back to regular life. And if you thought about being on vacation for all eternity, actually, that sounds horrible if you think about it. Doesn't it? Eternal life is not eternal boredom. Eternal life is abundant life. It's not the absence of responsibility. It's not the absence of something to do. It's the fullness of life. See, the kingdom of heaven, rather than being something that starts some other place, starts here today. You have a role right now in eternity in the kingdom of heaven. And the question really becomes, how are you engaging in the eternal work? Because you're going to be doing this if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus died in your place in the cross, that he rose from the dead. If you believe this, that you have the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to have all eternity, but it starts today. You see, Jesus defeated death. And so in that defeat of death, he says, I've brought life to my sheep right now, starting today. The most important symbol of the Christian faith, the most important one is not the cross. It's the empty tomb. And that might strike you as odd because we put crosses all over. Alina and I were talking about this, about what's going to go behind after the wreath is gone. And we're talking about a cross and different things. And I said, I, I don't, I said, I'm not opposed to crosses. Don't get me wrong. I love the cross. I mean, the cross is important. But the symbol for the early church was always the empty tomb. And she goes, well, I don't know how we're going to get an empty tomb up there, you know, like (laughs) cut a hole in the wall or something. I don't know. But, you know, the most important symbol of of the early church was always the empty tomb because it means Jesus didn't just die. He defeated death. And he brought life to his sheep, to his children. Abundant life, life today. 
When you and I understand this, our purpose for living changes. Abundant life is not just eternal life. It's a full life, a purposeful life today. It's doing what we were meant to do. You guys, uh, many of you here who know me know that uh, about three or four years ago, Clarissa and I had a dog named Riker who we gave to Jeff and Pam Alexander because Riker was a 100-pound Bernice Mountain Dog and he was out of control. I mean, he was just crazy. We got six kids. They, it, was, it was just a lot. So uh, anyway, but one of the things about Riker that I would notice is that as a 100-pound Bernice Mountain Dog, he was designed for snow. And so the month of July and August was horrible. Like he would just like, oh, please don't make me go outside, you know? Like please, he would find the air-conditioned vent, you know, and try to like cuddle around it. He just looked miserable. Put Riker. Well, the other thing is Riker was made to work. He's a work dog. So if you'd try to take him on a walk and push him on a, put on a leash, he wanted to pull you. And he was miserable and I was miserable because that was walking as he was just trying to pull me all over. Put Riker now in a February snow with a harness on, pulling my kids on a sled, and he was in heaven because it was what he was made to do. You and I have gotten so confused about what we're made to do. We have pursued all kinds of things. We think relationships, that will bring us fullness of life. We think possessions will bring us fullness of life. We think Christmas time and holidays and family will bring us fullness of life. But all those things are a lie. What brings us fullness of life is doing what you were made to do. If you are born again as a child of God who has defeated death through the empty tomb of Jesus, you are created to do kingdom work and you will never find fullness of life that Jesus brought until you've understood this, until you've done kingdom work. Satan would lie and confuse us. He would get you sidetracked. But Jesus has come to give life, fullness of life. So all this should create two longings in our heart. First of all, it should create in us a longing for kingdom work, a longing to know our place in this world as followers of Jesus. When we understand that we're followers and not just self-directed hedonists, but rather people who have submitted to the abundant life-giving following of Jesus. It should create our longing in our heart all the more to engage in this abundant life kind of living. There was once a woman who applied for college and on the application form, it asked the question, are you a leader? And, and this woman thought about it on her college application. And she wrote, being honest and conscientious, she wrote no. And then returned the college application expecting the worst. And as the story goes, to her surprise, she read, received an acceptance letter from the college. And the following note, dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it's imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so in reality, all of us are called to be followers of Jesus. If you decide to be a leader pursuing your own joy and happiness and fullness of life, you will never 
find it. But if you follow and embrace this kingdom work, that's where fullness of life is. Jesus knows that and he's trying to engage you with life. That's why Christmas happened. He came to give you life. So it should give you a longing for kingdom work. And the second longing it should create in your heart is a longing for the kingdom restored. Life at the fullest, a longing for home. For those of you who know Christmas pain, you know the enemy truly kills, he steals and destroys. And it's okay for you to long for the full expression of God's kingdom. You see, someday Jesus will come back and he will put his feet on this earth and he will reign as king. And everything that is wrong about this world that the enemy continues to mess up, Jesus will make right. And so knowing that he gives fullness of life should create in a longing for us, not only to do his work right now, but for the future, when our longings will be completed, when Jesus' kingdom is fully restored. And it's okay to long for that. It's okay to have days where you just say, Jesus, come quickly. I want you as my king. A number of years ago, I had a chance to go to India. I was working in India with a group that was training local pastors. And so I was preaching pretty regularly to this group of pastors with two translators in India, having no idea if what they said was what I was saying. But uh, it was a really fascinating group, we, this huge group of pastors. And I remember being in India and, and uh, just being exhausted all the time. First of all, I hate Indian food. I discovered that, right? Uh, it's gross and I just don't like it. Uh, secondly, I'm on a completely different schedule. I'm away from my family and the work of teaching the word of God day in and day out is exhausting. And I was just completely at my wit's end. I was tired and I was worn out. And there were days they had us staying in this hotel, which was the nicest hotel in the town we were in. And it was something that you and I might not even take our, our families to. But there was a TV in the room. And there were days when I just wanted to lay in bed and not get out. And I just wanted to watch cricket because that was the only thing on TV that I could even remotely understand uh, since there was no baseball. I was trying to figure out the rules of cricket and I, I never really figured it out. But uh, there were days where I just wanted to sit and just have a vacation. And yet the work was in front of me. It was before me. So I kept engaging. I kept engaging, even when I was tired. Because in the work itself, it was life-giving. I think Jesus must have felt something similar when he came here. You see, Jesus, being fully God, gave up his rights. He set them aside to exercise his authority and rights as God to become one of us. And I think, imagine that there were days where he had a longing to just return to the Father, to experience life once again, like you and I have never experienced. But he didn't. He walked amongst us. What's more, he came to us at Christmas knowing the longing that must have been there. But the work was before him because that was real life. Have you and I longed for real life? Have you longed for something more? Jesus has come so that you may have life. Lean into it. Don't run from it. Engage. 
We live in the territory of a defeated enemy that is still powerful. He still comes to still steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus still has come that we can have life. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray.